This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host. Welcome, everyone. This is the Meaningful Sport Podcast, and I am your host, Nora Ronkainen. Meaningful Sport is a series of discussions on the why and how involvement in sport and physical activity can be an important part of a life worth living. If you are interested in the theme, you might also want to check out MeaningfulSport.com. There you can find podcast show notes, read a blog, and access many resources for further explorations of Meaningful Sport. I have been looking forward to today's episode, where we explore meanings and practices of lifestyle sports, and especially parkour. Parkour is a movement culture where practitioners use urban spaces and obstacles, such as benches or rails, for practicing a variety of impressive movements, and its popularity has exploded in the recent years. Today, we will explore this phenomenon from a philosophical and sociological perspective, and ask whether parkour can offer moments of non-alienated experience in urban spaces. My guest today is Dr. Senior Heuber Larsen. She's an associate professor at the Department of Sports Science and Clinical Biomechanics at the University of Southern Denmark. Her research has focused on lifestyle sports and play, as well as the institutionalization of these activities. Welcome to the podcast, Senior. Thank you very much. Yeah, just like I said, I've been looking forward to our conversation. And I think we met the first time maybe about 10 years ago when we were both uh, PhD students. So we were in this uh, PhD course in, in Copenhagen. And I remember your talks on, on your work and, and your data collection as well. And uh, so you've done this extensive ethnographic work in parkour. And that's something you can only do if you are immersed in that movement culture as well. So maybe you can share a bit of your own background as a parkour practitioner, so how you got involved and uh, why you are fascinated about this movement culture. Yes, thank you very much, Nora. And, uh, and thank you also for this uh, opportunity to, uh, to share my research as well as my passion for, uh, for lifestyle sports and especially uh, parkour. I also remember the, the summer school and uh, and meeting you and uh, yeah that was a was a really great experience uh, in the beginning of my 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 research so how did i get into parkour um i was uh, an undergraduate student at Aarhus university uh, studying sports science and uh, i needed to find a subject for my bachelor thesis i've been doing uh, gymnastics all my life and uh, I was a part of a, a gymnastics associations doing just recreational uh, gymnastics in my free time. And uh, two of the boys from my gymnastic team, they, they had begun practicing parkour. So they told me about it and they, they showed me some videos on the internet and uh, it really, really fascinated me. So uh, they invited me to, uh, to join them one day uh, and I did. I followed them around in the city. Uh, and I still remember this uh, this first time uh, doing parkour because uh, they introduced me to uh, to a whole new way of uh, of looking at the at urban space. 
instead of seeing the normal routes, it was about exploring movement possibilities and um, about connecting various urban objects with the with these routes of movements. But even though I was uh, I was very fascinated when I tried it the first time, I must admit that I I also got a little bit of disappointed as well because because I actually thought that we were going to um, to jump from roof to roof and do some crazy stuff and maybe have the police chasing us. That what I saw, <laughs> that was what the, I had saw, seen on the on social media and the internet. But the, but they were actually more dwelling in urban space. So they were just spending a lot of time getting to know the different places, uh, seeing and fantasizing about what possible routes of movement they could put together. So instead of being like like a high speed and dangerous, the practice was actually more characterized by control and focus and playfulness. And it was very uh-huh. different from what I, I saw in movies and and the films they showed me. Yeah, I think if you look into like YouTube videos, if you want to just take a look at what it is like, I also thought that you get quite an unrealistic perspective yeah. or idea of what parkour is. So yeah, reality is something quite different, just like you yeah. said. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So so I was uh, curious about finding out more about this movement practice and also to. Uh, like busting the myth about what parkour actually was. And uh, another thing that I found interesting was that although the the two boys told me that it was parkour and it was a unique movement culture developed in France, I could recognize some of the movements from old systems of gymnastics. So most of these movements they were not movements that was a part of the gymnastics that we did in the gym hall every week. Um, at the, and as it was practiced in, in most uh, association at that time. But the, the movements that I recognized from old gymnastic systems was uh, some movements that I tried as a child and the movements that I saw in, in old historical books about gymnastics. So it seems like there are some shared movements, but also, of course, a significant difference between the parkour and the, and gymnastics. Because when I when I thought about gymnastics, the landing mats and the equipment has just become better and better and therefore the walls and the the movements has become higher and more complex all the time and in relation to that parkour was more like a kind of a backwards movement because the practice was uh, characterized more by this naked and relentless uh, connection between the skilled body and like the urban environment that's hard cold and inflexible so in parkour there's no mat uh, to save you uh, if you fall and the uh, there's also no easy way to get up on that wall. Like you can't use any equipment and you don't have any maps to save you. So yeah, bottom line is that I became very interested in how parkour and the traditional Danish gymnastics, that's two movement culture phenomena, they were related. So I chose to do my, my bachelor project on that subject and they, and found out that the parkour and traditional Danish gymnastics actually do share in a historical perspective some movements as well as ideological ideas about training your body and developing a strong and altruistic mind. Um, so so that was my start and, and the beginning. And then I developed my studies into a master thesis and I came in contact to uh, to one of the first Danish parkour teams called Team Dio. And uh, I went to France with them to visit the place that the parkour has been developed, a uh, suburban uh, called the suburban called the Lys outside Paris and uh, I traveled with them in a camper van uh, training hanging out and uh, and asking them a lot of questions about parkour and uh, taking part in their practice yeah 
Mm, maybe ask at this this point you started uh, mentioning about the ideological roots and and parkour is something that was developed in France. So maybe yeah. just expand a little bit on that. What is that ideological background and and that context where where this movement culture was developed? Yeah, of course. So parkour was uh, was developed in France by a group of Frenchmen in the late eighties, and um, I think bottom line is it's not a sport. It's uh, mm. it's it's governed by anti-sportive values, and it's been that since the beginning. So, it originates from a from a French military training system called the Parcours de Combattant. I don't know if I pronounced that quite uh, right in uh, French, but French. But uh, <laughs> the military training system was developed by a French officer, and uh, this uh, movement system was based on the idea that the training in natural environments and using basic functional movements that would foster physical and emotional uh, development, human virtue, and uh, and also reconnect people with uh, with nature. But uh, but this uh, training system and its values uh, wasn't the only inspirational source for, for these young Frenchmen. They were also very inspired by comic books and superheroes. I don't know if you know the Japanese Dragon Ball uh, cartoon. Uh, not really, but that's been an inspiration for them, yeah. Yeah, so they shared these fantasies about uh, being able to do the most impossible things and uh, conquering gravity and uh, and moving in in this way at the as these uh, superheroes. So they took some of these uh, movements from the old French system and they began to practice them in in the urban setting, putting together movement into this continued flow of movements that most people recognize as uh, as parkour. And they, they found out that they were actually able to change the perception of urban space and their everyday environment. So they reinterpreted the alienated the urban environment in the French suburbs as a terrain of, uh, of playful possibilities. So you can say that the, the practice was, uh, besides the values about physical and mental development, also also going by values about play and exploration of the uh, public every day speak the space mm. yeah and uh, yeah mm. so that was like a like the values uh, in the regions of it yeah and i interrupted your story so we were at when you were in um in france and observing this practice and and doing that yourself and so forth so let's continue that story yeah so i was uh, i was in france and i followed this group and the uh, then we came home and I, I finished my master thesis and uh, I kept on training myself. And in 2008, I decided to uh, to move to Copenhagen and uh, and actually become a part of this uh, this parkour team. So they had developed this team further, and uh, two of the the leading figures were actually trying to uh, to make a living out of uh, the passion, to do, doing teaching and courses and stunt jobs and performing so all kinds of jobs related to uh, to their uh, skills and uh, and parkour mm-hmm. and uh, because of my education in uh, in sports science and physical education i i helped them a lot to uh, to develop courses in parkour and teaching and uh, i also did uh, a lot of uh, stunt jobs actually <laughs> and uh, had some incredible actually some incredible experiences with the with this team so we got to uh, develop and establish the world's first public parkour park in Copenhagen. And uh, we also took part in a documentary um, in uh, 2010 
that explored the way that parkour is changing perception of urban space and uh, the question where urban mobility is, is heading in the future. Yeah, is it available in YouTube or somewhere? Maybe I can link it. Uh, yeah, it's called uh, My Playground. Okay. I know that there's a, there's a trailer for it on YouTube. Okay. Uh, I don't know if, if it's accessible uh, through YouTube, but uh, but it is. Uh, I know that there's a, a homepage where you can uh, you can buy it or order it. Okay. Um, Great. And it's uh, it was in a collaboration with the famous architect called Bjarne Ingels. He's a yeah great star in the, the architectural field. Okay. Um, so he's also a part of that day, that documentary. Okay. So in yeah. in 2011, I got the I was so lucky I got the opportunity to do a PhD about parkour. And uh, in this PhD, I tried to uh, to illuminate the the bodily and the social practice of parkour. So I wanted to describe what the what the practice was all about, how it was a, pr- a practice, and and how we could understand this practice in a in a broader cultural and uh, and social perspective. So um, yeah, mm-hmm. and I was also very interested in the institutionalization of parkour in the Danish context because I could see that the that the movement culture was a was quite heavily institutionalized in Denmark in in comparison to um, you know, when we compare it to to other countries. Um, there was a lot of uh, a voluntary association that uh, began to offer classes in parkour right from the beginning, actually. Mm-hmm. And there was also a lot of primary and secondary school who was uh, integrating parkour as an activity that uh, that was a part of PE. Mm-hmm. And also, there was a lot of facilities all over the countries being uh, being built for uh, for practicing parkour. So I found that they quite interested because at that time when we we saw this heavily institutionalization of the practice in Denmark, it was still like a, a very uh, not well known uh, subculture in France, uh, and and I found that very interesting. Like why why do we see these differences uh, between the countries, and and why do we have suddenly a lot of parkour? facilities a lot of parkour parks in Denmark and and we don't see those kinds of facilities in 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 other countries in the same way so that also became a part of uh, of my PhD mm. yeah I've only like when I lived in Uvascula like earlier as a student for uh, I I tried parkour like maybe half a year I think after that I moved to Denmark or something like that but I just remember yeah. that already at that time they had the parkour academy and they had their indoor mm-hmm. like uh, training hall and and there was also like this outdoor uh, training area just like what you are telling in in Denmark and now I remember yeah. I, I just looked because having this conversation I just looked up like what's going on with them and I see that now there is also like a certification for instructors um, yeah so things are really just like you say becoming quite institutionalized and mm-hmm. probably in here in Finland as well in the same way as in Denmark yeah and actually, so, yeah actually you know what I, I just remember now that the and I forgot to mention that that Finland is actually like one of the also one of the leading countries in the, in institutionalizing parkour yeah. and the, especially uvescular so uh, back from uh, 2008 i already remember that i heard a lot about the that the parkour was also being uh, quite heavily institutionalized in uvescular uh, and there are also some uh, some finnish researcher who has has done some nice research on the uh, on the way of the appropriation of uh, of urban space and also the the building of facilities in uh, in specific in the uvescular yeah so it's really interesting to see these developments and 
would it be right word to call this the sportification process as has been talked about other movement culture activities and what would the sociologists who are who are studying these processes what would they say and obviously you are studying these processes as well <laughs> so yeah maybe we can just try to explore those concepts that are related to this yeah. process a little bit and start with yeah. that and the second question i'll try to remember it afterwards would be to what are the perspectives of practitioners um is are they mm -hmm. happy about yeah. this development or is there resistance as well so let's start with yeah. those concepts yeah okay yeah in the in Pakua, i think international we see both a an institutionalization and we also see a specific sportification but i think there's a there's some difference to these two concepts because when for example in denmark when parkour is being institutionalized into sports association and pe it's not necessary because it it is like a becoming a sport in the clear definition of an achievement sport right so mm -hmm. you can have like an organized practice with teachers and the and in an indoor setting but it's not necessary because they they are making it into a competition sport so i think a lot of teachers especially in, and i can only speak from the context of denmark but especially in the in pe and in the in the gymnastics association they have a clear idea that parkour is something different and you shouldn't teach it exactly the same way as you, for example, are teaching gymnastics or you're teaching football or uh, some kind of uh, achievement sport. Mm -hmm. So so there is a difference there, but I think it also depends on, for example, in the gymnastics association, it depends on the way uh, gymnastic is, is uh, the culture around gymnastic is uh, is in in the different countries because for example in denmark gymnastic is not primary an achievement sport in denmark it's a sport for all mm -hmm. <laughs> it's a it's a broad uh, activity for leisure and uh, and there's a lot of play to gymnastics the way it is teach of course we also have sport gymnastics where like kids and and young people are practicing to uh, to maybe become a, a part of the national team and go to the Olympics, but that's a very very uh, that's a minority mm -hmm. in in the way gymnastic is practiced in in Denmark. And I know that in some other countries, uh, gymnastic is more uh, it's more like a, an achievement sport. It's practiced as a sport, so you're getting divided into uh, to specific age groups and after the level and things like that and um, so so if if you have parkour in these contexts i think it would be much more of a sportive sportification of the uh, of parkour mm -hmm. that that we actually see in in the gymnastics association in denmark so um but if we look at it international there has been like a sportification of parkour as well as we see in other lifestyle sports so I, I can't remember when they began. I think it was maybe around 2007 or something when we had the the first international competition called Red Bull Out of Motion. Mm -hmm. And that is like a sportification of, uh, of parkour where you compete uh, in, an, uh, in a park that they put up uh, a facility. So uh, 
Even though that the parkour was originally developed as this self-organized activity in the 90s and it was governed by these anti-sporto values, it, it has been spread in the, across many, many countries and institutionalized in many different settings. And it has also been developed as a sportive competitive practice. Mm-hmm. And in 2017, the International Gymnastic Federation actually announced that they would develop parkour international as a sub-discipline of gymnastics. And they actually planned for Olympic inclusion in, in 2024. But this has, however, been heavily criticized for, for corrupting uh, some of these core values and, uh, and also for misappropriation of, of the practice. Because even though we see this sportification and we do have some international competitions such as this one called Red Bull Out of Motion, most practitioners uh, do understand parkour as a playing practice and as something quite the different uh, to achievement sport. Mm-hmm. So your research participants, for example, my second question was about how do practitioners think about that? So if you think of the ones who you interact with and, and you who were part of your research, what kind of feelings do they have about this sportification process? I think it's uh, it's divided, actually. Uh, I think we have a big, big group of practitioners who are who are very critical to this sportification mm-hmm. uh, because they they find it uh, in a way inappropriate to what the according to the values and the the meaning that they are attaching to their to the practice. So for them, parkour is is about playing and it's about experience uh, experiencing uh, the urban environment in a different way and being together and connecting with people and spaces and uh, and not about the uh, competing or being the best or uh, or stuff like that but we also have a group of people who who find it like the the natural development of the the practice so uh, we also see this in all other kinds of uh, of lifestyle sports that the uh, for example skateboarding and snowboarding and surfing that they we they find it natural that when when people are are getting at a at a certain level in their skills they want to test them up against each other so they have this idea that this is like a natural thing to do when the when activities uh, grow and uh, and people become become more and more skilled at one point you you want to test your cap- capabilities uh, up against each other, and then they they also argue that the the way the competitions are put together is still with some of the values from the from the lifestyle sports. Mm-hmm. So so you you you're still uh, cheering on each other, and and um, they also argue that the sometimes uh, the petitioners are more uh, interesting in or. Uh, they are mentioning that that the something cool about the competition is that sometimes they are catalyst for for developing new skills and uh, new movements. Uh, so they are like uh, they are always uh, they are a part of pushing the limits to what is actually possible to do as a petitioner. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if it makes sense, mm. what I'm saying. Yeah, 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 and I mean you've written about parkour as craftsmanship and there is this idea of developing your skill developing your craft so there is this striving towards improvement and Mm -hmm. 
getting to a new level. So that's also part of the practice. But then the question whether you want to put that into a competition is is a different question. As you are saying, that that's something I would guess that all the practitioners are also striving to improve their skill in, in parkour. Yeah. But not everybody sees yeah. it a valuable thing to be putting it into a competition and i think one of one of the big critiques is also uh, that they don't want to have the label of being an extreme sport mm-hmm. that's very important to most uh, petitioners because uh, they are very dependent on accessibility to to urban space and uh, to have that uh, to be a legitimate part of uh, of of the street you have to be uh, you have to be somebody who is not a, a danger to other people mm. and also because they, they don't think about their practice as an extreme sport mm-hmm. they think about it as a as a playing practice and uh, and something about control and focus and uh, yeah about developing the way you can lay and move in the in urban space so that's also very important to them and also that they want the new generation to understand what parkour is uh, that it is a playing practice and not a sport that you just sign up to in in a club and then you go twice a week and uh, then you don't think anymore about it because I think what's fascinating most of the petitioner is that that it is a lifestyle sport. It's something that they they carry with them, this changed perception that they have of urban spaces. It's something that they carry with them in their everyday life. So when they drive in the bus and they look out the window and they see a perfect place for parkour, they get all excited. So so they are carrying this changed perception with them everywhere. And I think what, what most practitioners are afraid of is if parkour is just developing to be like a like a normal traditional sport that you attend in a club and you come there, you practice and then you you go home again and think about something else. Because that's very far from the the meaning and the experience that the that most of the petitioners have yeah and we talked about the tension with the sportification but i think we can also talk about the tension in the institutionalization so i think it's just such a striking contrast that you talk about your first experience of parkour and almost expecting that you'll be chased by the police even if it wasn't (laughs) like a reality but so Mm. whereas what is happening now is that the parkour practice is being put into like designated spaces that this is where you go and you do your parkour and yeah and i would guess and and what i understand that it has also been a form of some type of cultural critique and resistance mm-hmm. whereas that element is probably being lost when parkour is something that is taught in schools and and you know practiced yeah. in clubs and where you have level three certified instructors and so forth so is that resistance dying or maybe some practitioners are still like holding on to this uh, ideology behind i think a lot of practitioners is is still holding on to this uh, this uh, critique and i think it's quite important also because if we want parkour to uh, to be something alternative and something uh, yeah an alternative to to mainstream physical uh, cultural practices we need to to keep and focus on that where is the cultural critique or the alternative in parkour and i think it's it's very dependent on that we we don't look at parkour as just a specific sets of movements that you need to learn mm. like uh, you need to learn these skills and then you do parkour yeah and we also need to recognize that the urban environment and everyday space is a very important aspect of uh, of parkour if 
if we only have a focus on movements and the and we practice them in an indoor setting like traditional gymnastics or football or something else then it doesn't have much alternative to it anymore so what i argue in my latest paper is that the yeah that that it is a but it has the potential to give people other experiences with their everyday surroundings and the and the experience that people can actually change the perception of urban space and feel connected to it. And of course, it can still be motivating and an exciting activity to do in a more sportive setting, mm. if, for example, in an indoor setting. Um, and we can actually also see in some cases that that when we organize the when we have organized parkour, uh, it it does for some target groups make make it more inclusive and attractive for example we can see where we have organized classes with parkour we see we we always have more women practicing parkour actually mm-hmm. yeah but but i think it's important to uh, uh, to keep the connection to the to the urban street and uh, also on the values that we have some different values that the that we actually talk about and and the petitioners are quite explicit about in their practice, and I also think that's that that's a quite different from a from other sportive settings or or traditional physical cultures, and and also have a lot of practitioners who have told me that that before practicing parkour, I never talked about values with anybody. Like I never went to football and then we sat down and talked about, okay, what values do we have on this team? Or I never been to gymnastic and, and talked about, okay, what is the meaning of gymnastics and what values are we yeah, are we uh, practicing? Mm. Uh, but they suddenly tried that with parkour because the values are very explicit and feel attracted by that. So so I think these values are are quite important to the petitioners and we we actually need to care about them because that is what makes parkour an alternative to uh, to mainstream traditional sport and you mentioned your latest paper and that will be the specific focus of the second part of our conversation and i'll certainly link the other works that that you have written on parkour so the listeners can go and take a look so plenty of Mm -hmm. very exciting work that you have produced in this area so uh, for now for the first part of our conversation so thank you so much and uh, we'll continue to the next one thanks for joining us this week on physical activity research through podcast if you like the show make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on twitter this podcast is made possible by listeners like you Thank you for your support. If you found value in the show, we would really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever app you're using. Or if you would, in a real old school way, simply tell a friend about the show. It would be a great help for us. We have a fantastic lineup of guests for forthcoming episodes, so be sure to tune in. Thank you all for your support and have a great day.